I'm just taking a little stroll here at the infamous Evergreen State College, which has been a great place to walk in the last year because there's been no students. There's nothing better than a college campus with few to no students. <laughs> but I'm here with my co-host, Batty. So it's a, it's a Batty walk. And I was thinking about the argument people make where it's like, so-and-so played this pivotal role in history, but history erased them. And how you can basically invent that argument for anything. Because you can always use the, like if someone says, like, there's no evidence of that, you'd say, of course there's no evidence, because they were erased from history. So it's basically this all-powerful argument. Like, nobody can possibly counter your argument, because your argument is that there's no evidence for it, because the evidence was erased. And you see that a lot lately. You see a lot of progressives use that argument. I mean, for years what we hear are like, oh, so-and-so invented this but didn't get credit. You know, oh, it, it was invented by a, by a warman. A warman invented this. You know, a woman put the first rocket on the moon but, you know, didn't get credit. I don't know, it could be true. I'm not arguing against that. I have no dog in the rocket race. I only have my dog that I'm walking right now because that's what's important to me. <laughs> but uh, no, I, I have no dog in the race when it comes to like who actually invented such and such. But it is interesting how this argument has become more and more popular that basically there are these secret people who invented things and then history decided to not credit them and to erase all the evidence. Either because they're, you know, from a, a marginalized group, which might be true. I mean, there, there's a lot of truth to the idea that history is written by the victors, by men named Victor. Turns out men named Victor tend to be historians. Stupid joke. Good joke, actually. I like that joke. It might be a stupid joke, but it's a good stupid joke. Uh, what's funny is, is I feel like I have bang energy energy. But I haven't had my bang yet today. I have one waiting for me at home, but I think just thinking about it kind of gives me that bang energy, 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 energy. But yeah, it's just, just that idea of like, you know, when you say that somebody hasn't been properly credited in history for some kind of accomplishment, and then you say there's no evidence for it because the evidence was erased. It's basically, you know, an all-powerful argument. And in reality, it's a weak argument because you can just make things up and you can see that that's what people do with that argument. Usually when someone is making that argument these days, not to say it doesn't happen, you know, going back to the you know, history being written by the victors, history was written by a guy named Vic. You know, while that does happen, obviously, it's just it's also become this catch-all argument you can use for anything. And I only bring it up because I see it being used for truly everything lately. But an angle to like invention and innovation that a lot of people don't really talk about is that multiple people can invent the same thing at the same time in different places without being influenced by each other. In the same way that like I've never heard somebody make the joke, history was written by guys named Victor. Although I guarantee you somebody else has made that joke. It's a stupid and obvious obvious enough joke that I'm sure... I, I might even have made that joke myself on here and I forgot about it. 
that's how little I've invested in that joke. But, you know, it's one of those things where I bet other people have come up with that. And if somebody were to hear me make that joke and they had already heard somebody else make it, they would say, you stole that or you didn't come up with that. And the reality is, is I did come up with it. I've never heard anybody else make that joke. But it's something that somebody would come up with. Like making the joke, history is written by guys named Victor. You know, that's such an obvious joke to make that somebody would come up with it. It wouldn't just come out of some vacuum, vacuum, vacuum in one person's mind. And the same could be said for much larger inventions and innovations, where I think a good example of this is Dennis the Menace, where a Dennis the Menace comic was invented... Yeah, it was invented. No, but someone created a Dennis the Menace comic in America, I believe the same year as Dennis the Menace was invented in the UK. And they were both about little boys named Dennis who are menaces. Dennis's the menaces. They're both about that. And like one of them has blonde hair, the other one has dark hair, but it's like basically the same premise. And they were, they, they were created right around the same time. I want to say they were published in the same year. I would have to do more research. I would have to check my Dennis the Menace notes. But the idea is that they were basically created at the same time. And in some, you know, moment of synchronicity, they were created independently of each other right at the same time. It's like talking about the zeitgeist recently. It's kind of like a zeitgeist thing. It's like the world needed a comic strip about a little kid called Dennis who was a menace. And because the world was a little less global, like it was still global, obviously, but, uh, you know, we weren't quite in the globalist chamber that we're in today. So instead, because today, if, if that had happened, it'd be like one person would have created Dennis the Menace. It would have spread immediately to the entire world. But, uh, you know, at that point in time, you had to create your own regional Dennis the Menace, and that's what they did. And uh, you wouldn't say one of them ripped the other off. There's no evidence that either one was influenced by the other. And you think about it, and it's like, well, that's kind of specific to name a comic strip Dennis the Menace. But is it? I mean, Dennis was a popular name back then. When you think about men named Dennis, they're generally that generation, that generation of boys. Men who were boys in the 1950s were often named Dennis. And if you're talking about a kid who raises a little little heck, menace is a word. Menace to society. The word menace was in use. And since humans are, you know, so into rhyming things, it makes complete sense why two people independently would come up with the name Dennis the Menace for a comic strip about a kid who wreaks havoc, a baby boomer who wreaks havoc, because I believe that would would have been about the age we're talking about. So, you know, while someone could play the game of like, oh, one, one of them ripped the other off, it doesn't, I don't think there's really any evidence of that. They just both came up with the idea at the same time. And I believe that happens constantly. Like in the same way that I can come up with a stupid joke that somebody would make, and even though I haven't heard them make it, I don't think it's a very original thing. And you, you can go back to the very beginning of human innovation where it's like the first person to, you know, learn how to build a fire. Like, did one person do that or did multiple people 
tons of people. Did every tribe figure that out? You know, did every tribe figure out how to make a hut? Yes. You know, I don't, I'm not an anthropologist. I can't tell you everything because, you know, anthropologists, they obviously know everything about, about human history. No, but, but really, just on a gut level, it's like you know that it was an obvious decision to be like, let's build something that protects us from the elements. And that happened independently all around the world. And you wouldn't say any tribe that built a hut was ripping off any other tribe. It was just something obvious that people would do as their minds developed and they wanted to protect themselves from the elements. And so you can look at even more advanced innovations too. I mean, you can think about like rockets. And while like when you get into hyper-specific technology, usually there is one person who figured it all out. But you also have to wonder if it's another one of those things where somebody would figure it out. Is it something that multiple people could do? I mean, you think about even just like Russians and Americans racing to put the first man on the moon. It's something that multiple countries had an idea to do. And while the U.S. can, I guess, take credit, which, you know, you think about the epitome of human, the human ego is space travel. And people don't like it when I say that. People get really upset if you talk about defunding NASA. I was hanging out with this girl who was really into space. And the thing is, I like space too. I like space as it is. I think it's cool we go to space. But I, I made some kind of like half-joking comment, half-serious about, you know, we should defund NASA. And part of the idea behind that is because we can spend that money helping people. You know, if we're worried about, you know, allocating resources to helping people who are here on Earth, space travel seems like a relatively, seems like a pet cause. You know, it seems like something that's a little less important than actually helping people who are on planet Earth, given how much freaking money we blow on space travel and research and all that. So it's like I was half joking because it's kind of funny to say, yeah, defund NASA. But if we're talking about human well-being, that seems like an obvious budget to cut, doesn't it? So people get upset, though. And they think you don't like space. It's weird how people, their idea of space is NASA. And that tells you a lot about human psychology. Is that the fact that people think without NASA there's no space. <laughs> you know? Like, I, I'm not even kidding. Like, that's kind of, like, people get so used to the institutions that we use to investigate these things. I mean, you can see that with just the scientific institutionalization of science in general where it's like people think that science is the thing that science is studying or investigating and in the same way they think that NASA is space and it's like when I say defund NASA I'm, <laughs> I'm not saying uh, defund space I'm not saying you can't use a telescope I'm not saying we can't, you know, maybe we'll find a better way to uh, think about space. But it is funny how people's minds kind of go there. But to get back to my point, I was just saying how 
we get into this this mindset where it's like there's always one creator of everything and only one person at any given time could have come up with an idea and while it's true in some cases like everybody's felt like somebody stole something from them or ripped them off in some way and kids do it with everything I mean, I remember growing up, like, if one kid got a different haircut and then another kid got it, you might very well hear the first kid be like, he ripped me off, he got my haircut. Even though that haircut was probably a trend that was sweeping the nation, like, the first kid in his group of friends to get it is going to feel possessive of that hair. He created that haircut. You know, because nobody could have ever conceived of doing something like that with hair, this thing you can only do a few things with. And then if it's not the person who did it, it's like somebody else notices it. This is from a library. That windswept noise is from a library of sounds on my computer. It's not real wind. I'm, I'm pumping in, in the same way they pump in crowd noise in stadiums, I'm pumping in that wind that's causing the microphone to distort. It's even better if you can't hear it. If you can't hear the wind, it's even better that I'm saying I'm pumping it in. If you're pumping in the wind, you ain't pumping in much. But, no, it's like, if it's not the kid who gets the haircut who's like, they ripped me off because they got the same haircut as me, somebody else is going to notice it. They're going to be like, Johnny got the haircut first. And that's kind of more what I'm getting at here. Because it's one thing to feel possessive of something you did or something you feel responsible for, which is enough of, a, of an issue. But a lot of what we do and a lot of the argument that I'm talking about that people make when they're like, so-and-so did it first and they didn't get proper credit. You know, one of the arguments they make is, is that it was, it's, it's it, you know, it's somebody acting objective. They're pretending to be objective, but usually they do have some sort of agenda. You know, like often it does have some sort of social or political motivation, even if it's true. Like even if it's true, it often has a social or political motivation. And, and you'll see that sometimes in the form of like, oh, you know, Black Sabbath wasn't the first proto. I mean, I even saw this. This is an example because I saw like an article headline somewhere not that long ago where it was like Black Sabbath wasn't the first proto metal band. And I don't even know who, I didn't even click on it. I didn't even want to. Black Sabbath is good enough for me is kind of how I felt when I saw that headline. Um, but it, there was a picture and it had like a group of guys and apparently, oh, these guys, these guys did it first. And you, you probably listen to that. Like if you listen to the band that someone, you know, someone wrote an article where they're like, Black Sabbath wasn't the first band to sound like that. And in reality, if you probably listen to the band they're talking about, they probably sound nothing like that. But people like to do this, is my point. People like to go, oh, no, somebody was there beforehand. And, like, sometimes, you know, the degree of innovation is so strong that even if they were influenced by something, it's insignificant. Like, I discovered that with metal. Like, when I got into black metal and death metal and that kind of thing... Like, I remember I was at a show in the early 2000s, probably 2001 or 2002, and it was some kind of technical death metal band, and a guy I knew who was older called me over to smoke pot, and they were drinking some beers, and he was hanging out with these really old guys, like by my standards, I was probably like 16 or 17, 
and the guys that he was hanging out with were like in their 40s which seemed ancient at the time to be at a metal show hanging out with these like ancient metalheads who grew up in the 80s or whatever and we were at a show for like some kind of technical death metal band you know the the bands that were playing that night was in seattle at a venue that was called graceland not to be confused with Elvis Presley's home, but it was a venue called Graceland. And there was this period of time where like all the death metal bands played Graceland. They were all touring and they all played at Graceland. And so there's some sort of tech death metal band, Tech Death. Not to be confused with Tech Tech Deck. But anyway, like, like we were smoking pot with these old dudes, and one of the dudes was like, yeah man, like nobody. We we're talking about the newer bands that were playing death metal. And the old dude was just like, yeah, man, like nobody ever did it better than Slayer, though. You know, like nobody ever did it better than Slayer. And it's like, of course, all these bands are influenced by Slayer. Like, of course, every single death metal band that ever mattered started out as Slayer fanatics. Like, of course, like it's just a given. And even if they weren't, even if there's some like stick in the mud, like oppositionally defiant death metal band who was like well actually we didn't like slayer like even if that exists every death metal band was influenced by slayer but you know slayer wasn't death metal not in the same way that the stuff we were like the show we were at was some band who plays like an inhuman amount of notes dissonant notes with guttural growls over it and so it's like yeah i understand the guy's point like especially because he's an old guy He's making the point that, like, nothing really was ever better than Slayer to him, and they were the first to be, you know, in that vein, maybe. But I remember at the time, as a kid, just thinking, like, man, that's not what we're even here for. Like, the bands that we're seeing don't sound like Slayer, like, even though they're influenced by them. And that's what I mean about, like, there's a degree of difference. Like, it'd be one thing if he was, like, you know... I don't know. I, sh- I should have responded to him and said, like, yeah, well, that's 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 what you think, but uh, nobody ever did it better than Deeds of Flesh. Start acting like Deeds of Flesh is the be-all, end-all, which is sort of how I feel. <laughs> Even though I never owned a Deeds of Flesh album, but that might have been a Deeds of Flesh show now that I think about it, because as I've said on here before, I think the best set I've ever seen, the best concert I've ever seen was Deeds of Flesh in Seattle in, like, 2002. They were so good. Like, seriously, like a three-piece... You know, you think about technical death metal, just death metal in general, and you think... You always think of them having two guitarists. But Deeds of Flesh played in Seattle. I had never heard them before. And they they had one guitarist, a bass player, and the bass player and vocalist traded off vocals. And they just... They were so good. And I wasn't on drugs. I wasn't... You know, maybe I, maybe I was... No, I don't, I don't think I was stoned when I saw them. So that was probably a different show. Point being, I should have responded to that guy who was like, nobody ever did it better than Slayer. With, yeah, well, nobody ever did it better than Deeds of Flesh. Slayer's no Deeds of Flesh. But that said, like, more and more I understand that guy. Like, more and more, I mean, just time makes you into that guy. And you know what, to be totally honest... I feel that way about Slayer more now than I ever did, you know what I mean? Like, I probably would rather, I definitely would rather listen to Slayer right now than 90% of, like, technical death metal. And I still like technical death metal in its own right. But still, like, I I would much rather listen to Slayer than any of that. So it turns out that guy was right. But anyway, (laughs) 
you have bands like Slayer where yeah yeah they innovated you know and even if you could say there were other thrash bands there were other speed metal bands you could probably say Slayer was influenced by this there are bands that come out and they are just so iconoclastic but this whole idea of like you know I'm talking about the socio-political side of, of like turns out this thing was invented by this marginalized person and there's no evidence of it or the evidence was suppressed and even if that's true it's just kind of like it's almost like a fetish people love to point that kind of stuff out it gives them some kind of thrill and being a music fan you find that a lot in music like talking about that article i saw that was like it turns out there was a band that did it before black sabbath like did what made them some of the most incredible music ever like, oh, did they, did they have, like, down-tuned guitars and they played bluesy riffs? Did they write songs that sounded as good as Black Sabbath? Is that what you're saying? Because if that's the case, I'll check it out. But that's the problem with that sort of stuff is someone will be like, oh, so-and-so did it better first. Or they, or they just did it first. And it's like, well, yeah, but did they do it as well? Because if you're telling me there was some secret band that was as good or better than Black Sabbath, that's a whole other conversation. But if you're saying there's just some band that played, like, slow, bluesy rock, well, okay, you know, okay, somebody did it. Because then it does get into this quality thing, where it's like the reason Black Sabbath was as big as they were, and why pretty much every friend I have, no matter what they're into... No matter how deep into the underground they've gone. I mean, I have friends who like are just like indie rock dudes who love Black Sabbath. You know, there's, it's just such a, a universal. And so it's like if we're talking about quality, well, there's a reason why Black Sabbath was Black Sabbath. Both for the innovation as well as the quality. Because just being innovative doesn't mean anything. Sometimes it's interesting, but innovation without substance is novelty. And novelty is fun for a minute, but it doesn't really go anywhere. Uh, but uh, but yeah, you see this a lot with music, where like people are like, "Oh, this is the band to, to do it first. And I, you know, I really discovered that too with black metal, for example. Which I try to keep that off this show. I don't feel like uh, that's it's meant for this show, but occasionally I'll mention it. And you, know, you think about like the jump from you know Venom and Bathory to the early 90s bands, just in terms of melody, in terms of just delivery, approach, you know, it's like, while you can hear the influence, you know, things change rapidly, and even though people were playing distorted guitars, like, people weren't writing those kinds of melodies in the 80s, at least not for the most part, so it's like when you're talking about like somebody doing it first. Because, I, I mean, I have heard people say that kind of thing. I've heard people talk about, you know, black metal and say, like, oh, well, nobody ever really did it better than Hellhammer or Bathory. And it's like, we're talking about something completely different. You know, when we start getting into some of the melodic ideas, some of the sort of transcendental melodies that started to come out of, you know, pagan black metal or something... You know, we're, we're really getting far from Bathory, who I love. You know, we're getting far from Hellhammer, for sure. So it's like when, when people, you know, use that argument, it's just like, well, are we even talking about the same thing at that point? And for some reason, like, I mean, it's all just, all this stuff, too, it comes down to, you know, like the, the endless pursuit of jewels. And that's where the ego is involved. Like, 
when someone says like, oh, it turns out this scientific discovery was actually found by somebody else and it was suppressed or it was erased from history, they're almost taking possession of it. They're being like, this is a jewel to me. This piece of knowledge is a jewel to me. And my ego is somehow attached to telling the truth. And then in music, it's the same thing. Like, oh, I discovered this band that did it first. And your ego is always attached to that because you found a jewel. But when your ego is attached and you're getting high off of that jewel, you might not even be seeing the thing for what it is. I mean, that's the weird thing about all this is like sometimes like you're, you're so eager to prove something or to show off the jewel that you found that you're not even seeing the jewel for what it actually is. And it might be a wonderful jewel, but it might not be the same jewel you're trying to convince people that it is. And I know that we're getting pretty far out there into the abstract here. But uh, just I wanted to make that point. That sometimes the thing that you think you found isn't what you think it is. And it might still be important. But you've crafted this kind of story around it. Because you're getting high off of it. Your ego's attached to it. But I don't want to forget the point I made earlier, which is that multiple people can come up with the same discovery they can they can discover the same thing come up with the same idea at the same time without being influenced by one another or even at different times like let's go back to the stupid joke you know history is written by guys named victor like i bet you somebody came up with that joke 50 years ago somebody's probably making that joke not only just right now somewhere else in the world and i don't know about it so therefore I'm not ripping them off. But somebody might have made that joke 50 years ago. That joke might be in a joke book. That joke might be in a movie or a TV show. And I haven't seen it. So even though it might have, somebody might have made that same joke 50 years ago, I'm still not influenced by it. And it doesn't make it original. Like just because I'm not aware of the thing that I'm saying, you know, just because I'm not aware of anybody else having made it, it doesn't mean it's original. But it's important to remember that there are some things that somebody would and could conceivably come up with based on fairly obvious points of reference they have and the time in which they live. Therefore, it's not always this game of doing it first. And I don't like imitation because, I mean, people do rip each other off and I still haven't come to terms with that. So don't get me wrong that I'm talking about... Like, I, I still don't believe imitation is a form of flattery. And, and, you know, you might inevitably imitate somebody, but it's not a good thing necessarily. And even though it's difficult to be truly original in this world... When you consciously take something from somebody, when you consciously steal an idea, I don't think there's anything flattering about that. And if you're a creative person or just a person in general, you have to be okay with the fact that human beings do that. Like, you can't let that hijack you. Like, if you've ever felt that somebody ripped you off or took an idea from you, which I don't know how you go through life not feeling that way at some point, but if you've ever felt like somebody kind of ripped you off or anything like that, you have to come to terms with that. that. You can't get that. You can't get possessed and and be angry and out of. You, you can't lose control because it's easy to. 
because you think somebody stole your jewel, but you never know. You don't want to, and you don't want to make accusations or anything like that because they could have come up with it independently. If you could come up with it, so could they, but sometimes you just know. Sometimes the degree of separation between you and someone or something is so small, or you know, you know, or you just know that they did. You have some sort of evidence. And you do hear, even in, you know, in the sciences, you'll, you'll hear about someone stealing somebody else's work, somebody else's theory. But I also believe two people can discover the same thing in different places at different times, or even in the same place. Like if two people are watching an anthill, and both of them notice the same thing that nobody's ever noticed about ants at the same exact time, you know, did one of them rip the other off, or is it just something that somebody would have noticed if they paid enough attention to an anthill? You know, it's that sort of idea. But this is all something to consider, you know, when you get into this, like, history has been revised to, to erase these people, and history has been, you know, designed to elevate these people, which does happen, but it, like, it, it's almost intoxicating to get into that way of thinking, and it becomes almost mythical, it becomes almost mythological. Like, there are some stories where it's like, oh, there were these supernatural people who were there throughout history at every major event, and then they were forgotten. And if you look in this, oh, if you look in this photograph, there's this secret guy, or, or if you look at, like, all these photographs throughout history, there's the same guy in the background of every photo spanning hundreds of years. You know, it's almost like that, you know, the way people start thinking about, like, you know, almost like these supernatural mythological entities that have always been there innovating and they've been responsible for every major event in human history. It's almost like that way of thinking. But people get that way about social and political issues where it's like rock and roll was created by these people and then it's like, well, you know, but where did that come from? And this is why I like Buddhist cosmology because it's like Buddhist cosmology basically addresses the fact that nothing is without influence from something else. Every motion is influenced by another motion. It's dependent origin. The origin of all life depends on something else. So it's, you know, basically impossible to pinpoint the origin of life. Because the origin of life, it turns out, is actually a relationship between multiple things interacting with each other. And because it takes one to move the other, how can you really say what moved first? How can you really say what was there first? And I know this goes against, you know, Christian creationism. I don't know that it does. I haven't really tried to reconcile that. But I, I, I am attracted to that idea. You know, not, not even in a, uh, a religious way, but I, I just like the idea of, you know, dependent origin, where it's like every single motion is dependent on something else moving it first. And I think you can apply this to just being a human being in life. And the fact that, you know, while sometimes somebody does, you know, innovate something or moves, somebody moves the, the marker 
way farther ahead than somebody else to the point where you almost forget where the marker was originally. You know, something was influencing them to do that. They weren't operating in a vacuum. And it's important to remember that multiple people could have moved that marker at the same time without even being aware of each other, you know, where they don't, they don't necessarily need to even know each other exists or to be moving the same marker. But it can have the same result. That doesn't mean that imitation is a form of flattery. <laughs> I want to make that clear because even though I should have, like I feel like I should have come to terms with that idea. Like I should have come to terms with the feeling of like, this is my jewel and you took a part of it. You took a, you photocopied my jewel. Even though I feel like just on a, on a maturity level, on a spiritual level, <laughs> you know, in terms of spiritual maturity might be a way to put it. I feel like I should be better about that. But, you know, one of my seven deadly sins, my, my main sin, you know, I think we all have, we all experience all the sins, but, you know, we, it is said that we each have one, and I, I do believe mine is pride, and not pride in the sense that, like, you necessarily peacock around, like, it's not necessarily like you're looking at all the mirrors, although, you know, you might, it's, it's that I'm very proud of what I do, action-wise, and, I, it's not, and that hasn't always been the case. You know, I think the worst times in my life were when I was doing things that I wasn't proud of and in denial about it. But when it comes to, like, the work I do, I'm very proud of that. And, and when that's your, your seventh deadly sin, you're very proud. You can be very possessive of the things that you've done. And I'm not somebody who... You know, I'm an obscure person who, like, you know, certainly hasn't gotten a lot of attention for things I've done or anything like that. But every once in a while, you know, you do, you do realize, like, somebody took an idea from you. And it could even just be something you said. It could be a friend repeating something that you said and not giving you credit. I mean, I've done that to my friends. I did that in front of a friend like, like, years ago, Miles had said something to me. Like, Miles and I had a conversation when I first met him. And he made a statement that I still think is very poignant, where he said, I don't believe in mental illness. I think, or, that was basically, he, he basically said, I don't really believe in mental illness. I think some people are just smart and depressed. And the idea that we were talking about was basically that people who are smart and depressed will invent very imaginative ways of expressing their discontent, discontentment. And I still stand by that. Like, I know, that, you know, I've known enough people in this life, I've paid enough attention to know that there are some people who are truly mentally ill. But there are also a lot of people, and you find them in the arts. The arts tends to collect these types of people who manufacture imaginative stories to justify their misery. They play characters. And anyway, Miles had said, you know, I think a lot of mentally ill people aren't mentally ill. They're just smart and depressed. And I was hanging out with Miles, and one of my childhood friends came down to visit. And so we were all hanging out, just, I think, having a beer, smoking some pot. And we were talking about mental illness, because the friend who was visiting me had just been prescribed lithium and had some things going on. 
And I, I made a comment to the, to the, I basically just said exactly what Miles had said to me a few months earlier, where I was like, yeah, you know, you're probably not mentally ill. You're probably just smart and depressed. And the second it left my lips, I looked at Miles and he just, he was looking at me with just, <laughs> with such contempt. <laughs> and, he, and he was like, seriously? And I was like, Miles, and I, I, right away, I was like, Miles said that to me, you know? Because I don't do that. Like, even even if the person who said it wasn't watching me, I try not to do that. Or if I do, I, I try to give people credit, even if they're not there. But it's like, we were, we were, you know, drinking, smoking pot. I was trying to make my friend feel better. You know, I'm justifying the fact that I, like, paraphrased my friend in front of him without initially giving him credit and obviously it still haunts me you can tell this that kind of thing really bothers me because it still haunts me that i did that to my good friend but uh you know it was one of those things though where it was like yeah the circumstances we were just like having a casual conversation my friend was talking about some like misdiagnosis he had been given for a mental issue and i do believe it was a misdiagnosis and they'd given him some crazy medications that interacted with him in a terrible way and so i was just trying to make him feel better by saying like you're not i don't think you're crazy you're just smart and depressed and the reason i said that is because you know miles was able to put it into such perfect words and uh, i you know i caught myself and he caught me too but I'm not, I guess my point is, is like I still haven't come to terms with imitation as flattery. Even though we all inevitably do it, sometimes unconsciously. You know, it's not like I think people should be drawn and quartered for every unoriginal thing they do. Because we, we, do, we do have to learn from each other. We do have to imitate each other. I mean, you see it especially with like little boys, like... Like, a little boy will see, like, his uncle, if he has a cool uncle, his uncle's, like, wearing a blue cap. And the little boy tells his mom, like, I want to get a blue cap so I can look like my uncle. You know, it doesn't mean, like, the kid's a poser. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, it doesn't mean the kid's a, you know, oh, that kid's a little imitator. You know, it's, it's not like, it's what we do. And it's cute when kids do it because kids are figuring life out. Like, a kid who wants to dress like his uncle isn't a poser <laughs> you know it's just uh like i did that with my sister's friends you know my sister is seven years older and so when she was in junior high and high school i was like this little kid hanging out with these dudes who would come over who were like into music into skateboarding they were rebellious and so what did i want to do i wanted to be like them you know i i think you need like de facto mentors i mean there's a reason why mentorship is basically like a form of faking it until you make it. You know, mentorship is basically like, here, like, take my advice and do what I do. And like, taking someone's advice or following their lead isn't being a poser. <laughs> you know, it's just learning. So, you know, I want to make it clear that, you know, learning and, you know, developing yourself does require a form of imitation and you know following someone's lead but it's just that there reaches a point where it becomes just just an unethical bad thing to do which is why i haven't quite come to terms with the whole idea of imitation being flattery and what's funny about that is my best friends are exactly the same way 
my best friends feel the exact same way, which is a great system of friendship to have because it means that nobody's going to like seriously and deliberately rip each other off. You might take influence. I think any friendship is going to be based on, you know, mutual influence, but like, it's important, I think, to have friends who aren't going to rip you off. Because, I mean, you think about some groups of friends, so-called friends, and, like, they'll, they'll steal physically from each other. They'll steal objects from each other's homes, and they all do it to each other. There's people like that. And there's people who do it with ideas. You can have friends who are creative, quote-unquote creative people, who are just sitting there waiting to steal your ideas all the time. They exist. I've met them. And I don't hang out with them because I don't want to hang out with people who are trying to rip me off. And it's not like I'm some popular dude and every, everybody's trying to rip me off. But I'm just saying, like, sometimes you will meet people and you realize at some point, oh, this person is trying to get something out of me. And I'll talk to friends of mine and they'll talk about people they know who are doing that to them. And so if you're able to have friends who are creative people and you can influence each other and there's trust with that, that's an amazing thing. It's, I would say it's actually phenomenal to have friends who are original, creative people who aren't... It's, it's actually going to make them sick if they, if they rip you off, and it's going to make you sick if you rip them off. But that doesn't mean you won't stumble upon some of the same things, because if, if they're your friends, they probably think similarly to you in some ways. They probably pay attention to the same things. So part of that is that you might very well come up with similar things at the same time without ripping each other off. And it actually reinforces the ideas you're coming up with because you can say, oh, hey, we both noticed that thing and had the same response. And because we're friends, we can appreciate that. I don't know, just a subject I think about because no matter how far into adulthood I get I see people worried about these things like you could go to a senior citizen's home and I guarantee you somebody there thinks somebody else ripped them off like people even do it when they order food like I've seen people get mad because somebody ordered the same thing they ordered at a restaurant I've gotten mad about that think about how stupid that is you have a menu of food that's highly limited and somebody's mad because another person ordered the same thing from that limited menu probably because they trust your taste or you trust their taste but my point is is that people get upset about imitation they get upset about not being credited they get upset about you know ideas being taken from them they get upset about people in history who they think didn't get proper credit for something. This is something that we as human beings deal with from the time we're children, through our adult lives, until we die. We are worried about, we we are possessive of these jewels. And some of us might be more preoccupied with it than others. I mean, I think about it a lot just as an idea. Well, I do get bothered when I feel like I do get bothered when I feel like somebody is imitating somebody else. 
on the rare on the rare occasion that I feel like somebody is imitating me, I get upset. I get upset at myself if I think that I'm imitating somebody else. While that does go through my head, I also just think about this as an idea. And I, and I do see it in a spiritual context because I think one of the reasons for spiritual discipline, and I think one of the reasons you get put on a spiritual path, is to come to terms with these things. Not necessarily to completely accept them. Because I think that's something that people kind of have the wrong read on. Like, I think that sometimes people think that, oh, spirituality, devoting yourself to a spiritual practice means that I'm going to accept and be totally fine with everything that I don't like. And that's not the truth. You'll torture yourself unnecessarily if you think that way by being like, oh, this is going to be the perfect solution to all my problems. The reality is, is that spiritual discipline might just make those things bother you less. You might feel more indifferent than you otherwise would. You might feel more ambivalent than you otherwise would. It's not necessarily going to make you like those things. You know, it's not necessarily going to make you like the things that you've disliked your whole life. But you you might be hijacked less. And I, I feel that way right now. You know, I had a, there was something I saw earlier. I had popped online and I saw something, somebody I know in town here. It's always somebody in town. <laughs> I feel like... of the things I see online that bother me are somebody I know in Olympia, Washington expressing some social or political view that they didn't come up with. Like in this case, it was like some guy that I kind of know here, you know, you know, shared something that was a, it was like a screen cap of somebody else's Twitter post. So it wasn't even his own idea, but it was just somebody was making a social political, socio-political point, and I, I was just, I just couldn't, the, just the twisted logic and sickness to it, because I've realized that it's not that, I, I talk a lot on this show about how I don't see people as stupid, there are stupid people, but I don't see most people as stupid, and it bothers me when people say, most people are stupid, you know, it bothers me when people say that so often, because what they mean is people disagree with me and I don't like it. Like when someone says, people are so stupid, that's all they're saying. They're they're not saying people are actually dumb. They're saying someone disagrees with me and it bothers me. But anyway, like, uh, you know, I don't see people as stupid, but I do think they're sick. I do think people have gotten very sick. And so I basically, I saw this thing online, you know, and that's funny how it works. It was like, I looked online for a split second and I immediately saw something that bothered me a generalization somebody was trying to make involving socio-politics. And uh, I didn't get mad, though. It didn't hijack me. Like, I wanted to say something, and I, and I don't do that. I don't say something when I see things like that. But, like, I did want to express something about that, and I guess I am expressing something about it right now. And I'm not even going to talk about it. I decided I wasn't even going to talk about it. It was some sick thought that somebody had. Because I've realized, you know, while, while I don't think people are stupid, I do realize that they've gotten very sick. And I think people, you know, they experience this mass hysteria that makes them very ill. Or maybe they're just smart and depressed, but, you know. <laughs> but anyway, I saw it and I was like, you know, I'm not mad. Like, it was, it was an interesting feeling where I saw this thing I didn't like at all. I didn't like what it was implying. I didn't like the way it was even worded. 
It wasn't just the idea. I didn't even like the way the idea was worded. I didn't like anything about this. But I didn't feel anything. I didn't feel any actual fire. I didn't feel any actual anger. And that's nice. It's nice that I could just observe this thing and say, I don't like that. And I dislike it just as much as I would have at any other point in my life. But I do believe that in developing a practice, I don't need to react to it. I don't need to feel it. You know, I think that would be a way of putting it is... I don't completely feel this thing that's bothering me. And I think that's where spiritual practice comes in, is that I'm no longer feeling anything. Or or if I am, I'm feeling it substantially less. And so this might be something that you see that pisses you off. You know, like somebody made an opinion or like parroted... This does kind of fit in with what I'm talking about. Because what I saw was somebody... Parroting somebody, something somebody else said. Like somebody posted a screen cap of something somebody else said. And that's like, you know, you're not even using your own words to express this extremely polarizing idea. And so it does, it fits in with this conversation in that way. Where a lot of what you see online is people just quoting other people. Like, it's just somebody screen-capping something somebody else said. So it's like, in many cases, people aren't even expressing this viewpoint of... You know, you know what I mean? It's like, it's like some, it's especially funny to me when somebody says something that's extremely politically polarizing, but they're not even using their words to express it. So they're basically just imitating somebody else's opinion. Because chances are, if you were to express your own opinion, it couldn't possibly be identical to this other person's. Even though it could be, chances are there would be some nuance, something in your life that would lead you to see it slightly different. So why not use your own words if you're going to express something that's that politically polarizing? But anyway, point being is like, you know, I think some people approach spirituality and they think like, oh, by studying and practicing this stuff, I'm going to now feel joy all the time. You know, you see that there's a bumper sticker... I love, I actually love this bumper sticker. It says, no more bad days or something like that. And I love that because it it plays into like the follow your bliss sort of stuff, which is like such a, to me, such a, a funny distortion of Eastern spirituality. Like the idea that it's like, oh, I meditate to feel bliss. Nothing but pure joy. It's like, while joy is a byproduct, it's like, you know, I don't see all of that stuff as a practice of joy. Oh, what's your discipline? Oh, it's a discipline of joy. It's a great discipline to have if you can have that. But it's just, I think some people expect that. And that's my point. It's not that some people can't cultivate joy. But some people think they can turn the things they hate into things they love. And while you can do that by seeing everything as part of a larger whole, like you can, you can look at the things you hate, the people you hate, and say, I'm a part of them too. They are a part of me too. We are, we are part of the same thing. You can do that, and you can develop a certain love. But it's like, let's get away from people and, and just say, like, if there's like a food you absolutely hate, spiritual discipline isn't going to make you love it. But it might bother you less. 
And the same goes for seeing an idea that you don't like. If you saw an idea or heard an opinion that would have hijacked you, spiritual discipline or just, or just any kind of, it doesn't have to be spiritual, but I think I'm coming from that point of view. It can make you be bothered less by it. You won't be hijacked by it. Driving in the car, like someone cuts you off in traffic and you're upset the rest of the day or at least the rest of the drive. You give them the middle finger. You know, d developing some kind of discipline. Let's just go with general discipline. You know, it might help you simply not react in that way. It might simply help you not be hijacked. So to bring this full circle, that's kind of what I've had to learn about, you know, imitation and unoriginality and people not being credited, whether it's somebody not being credited historically for something that they may have innovated or invented, or whether it's simply just somebody, you know, not getting credit for writing a riff. Oh, this guy came up with that guitar riff. Oh, Led Zeppelin stole that riff from some obscure guy. You know, you hear things like that. It's a form of this. But I think having some kind of discipline, it doesn't make you like those things. Like, developing a discipline doesn't make you tolerate imitation and intellectual theft. But it can make you less bothered by it. And I think that's what I'm getting at here, is that even though these things go on, I think you can condition your mind to not necessarily tolerate them, but just to be like, this is a part of the whole thing. Part of being a living creature, part of being a person, is the fact that things happen that disturb me and they're necessary somehow. And you know, one of the, I don't, I don't necessarily like to share these things, not because they're super secret and sacred, although they are, but one of the reasons I don't talk about them is just because they're kind of obvious and they're not necessarily things that you, you want to talk to people about. And, and you know, most meditation involves some variation of, of this kind of statement, but I'll just share my own, what I say. I say this at the beginning of every meditation I do, and then I say it later on. I say a variation of it later on, but I start every meditation I do, and this, is, this has been, while some of my mantras, some of the statements I make have, have changed a little bit over the years, the last, all three years that I've been meditating, but no, over the last three years, obviously, my practice has changed a little bit here and there, but I've said this at the beginning since pretty much the beginning, which is that may all creatures you know, suffer less and what suffering remains be necessary and temporary on their path to development. And I, I decided to go with that just intuitively. You know, I'm not, you'll hear other people use very similar statements to start off their meditations. But some of them will say, some of them will talk about alleviating all suffering. Like uh, Krishna Das, who I like. You know, I like Krishna Das. He was the original singer of Blue Oyster Cult. And then he, he quit before they became Blue Oyster Cult and moved to India. I, I, and actually, I know very little about him. The only reason I know anything about Krishna Das is because I'll sometimes listen to his live shows on YouTube, and I enjoy him. I think I like his perspective. 
but anyway, he, during his meditations, he'll say something to the effect of, like, alleviating suffering from all creatures. So that what I say at the beginning of mine is very similar to that, but it was important for me to acknowledge that suffering is inevitable and it will be there. But to see that suffering as something that can potentially aid in your development, because suffering should. And I don't want to get into the whole difference between pain and suffering thing here. Or like pain is something that happens to you and suffering is the reaction. But that said, you can't always choose when to feel simply pain and when that pain causes actual suffering. You know, you can't always decide that something is going to be simply painful or whether it's going to develop into full-blown suffering. You can't make that decision. I think some of these things I'm talking about can help you. Like when my mom died, I didn't suffer. I did not feel for one second that I was suffering then or now. And I'm not going to pretend that I won't suffer for it in the future. I'm not going to pretend that it's impossible, even though it's been a year and a half, I'm not going to pretend that there won't be some point where I feel suffering at her loss. But I can tell you that her dying, this person who was the epitome of love and everything wonderful about human life, even though I, I lost her in this very sudden way and I was there for the whole thing and I experienced pain, I didn't suffer. But that said, I don't think you can completely escape suffering. I, and I believe that particular instance didn't have any suffering because she and I had addressed that. She and I had had long conversations about death. And my practice had also been devoted up to that point toward, you know, alleviating that feeling. And have I suffered since? Sure. It's not that I haven't suffered since then in, in small ways. And it's often small things that cause me suffering, which is funny. It's pointless things that cause me suffering. The, the biggest tragedy I've ever experienced caused me no suffering. Yet, tiny things cause me suffering. Tiny anxieties. Neurotic things cause me suffering. But anyway, I start off my meditation with that statement, you know, may all creatures suffer less, and what suffering remains be necessary and temporary on our path to survival and, de and development. I think I left off survival the first time I said it, but what I just said is exactly what I say to start off meditation. And I wanted to frame it in a way that didn't expect suffering to ever be alleviated. I wanted to frame it in a way that acknowledges that there is a certain inevitable amount of suffering. And it could be small things. It could be needles that make you suffer, whereas a sword in your belly doesn't make you suffer at all. You know, it could be that. It's what I'm talking about here, where it might not be a big thing. It might not be a big tragedy that makes you suffer. It might be tiny things that prick you. They prick you. But it's important for me to acknowledge that there is an inevitable amount of suffering. And if you can go through a, even just a period of your life, if you can go through a day, an hour, where you don't suffer in some way, that's a success. But if you do suffer in that span of time, whether you suffer for a minute, whether you suffer for a day, whether you suffer for your whole life, I think framing it as something necessary and hopefully temporary 
on your path to survival and development is the right approach to take. It's like catabasis, and it's like I'm going into the underworld to find something I can use and bring back out. Like I'm going to suffer because it's going to aid my survival and development in some way. It's necessary, but hopefully temporary. That's my approach to it. And I want to make it clear that all these small petty things relate to that too. Like when I get bothered by, an, by somebody expressing something unoriginal, or I get bothered by somebody's opinion, if I don't like the way something tastes, all of these small dislikes that we develop over a lifetime that calcify, those are a form of suffering. But you cannot suffer. You know, you can experience the dislike. You can experience the pain of those things. Because that's kind of what dislike is. You know, it sounds really melodramatic to be like, when you dislike something, it's pain. <laughs> you know, uh, but it sort of is. Because that's what pain is. Pain is a feeling where it's like, I really don't like this. I really don't like what I'm feeling. And so you experience that to some degree when something makes you angry, when something makes you sad. But developing a discipline that frees you from being hijacked by those things, that frees you from the reaction to those things. I believe that's important. Some people naturally do that. There are some people from the time they're born they just know how to handle life. But so many people don't, which is why people go to therapy, which is why people are, go to jail, which is why people kill themselves, which is why people blow their bodies up with substances. A lot of people don't know how to handle those things. And it is the small things. So if you can devote yourself to some kind of practice, it doesn't have to be spiritual, it could just be a philosophy. I don't really understand philosophy outside of a spiritual context myself. I'm not really interested in philosophy outside of a spiritual context. But you could use it in, in a similar way. Or you could just live your life, and if you're able to do that, do that. If you have all of this stuff naturally figured out, I don't need to tell you to do anything. And I'm not telling anybody to do anything. But I will say that all of these little things that cause you even minor suffering, if you're going to experience pain and suffering in these small ways because of your reactions to things, your reactions to events, to people, to the things people do, see that pain and suffering as necessary but temporary. And, you know, I, I, a lot of times we let things go. Like, if somebody pisses us off, like, let's go back to the thing I saw earlier, where I saw an opinion I really didn't like. And while for, like, a few minutes I was like, God, I can't believe that. Oh, my God. You know, for, like, well, a minute I thought that way. There's people where that would stay with them for a week or a month or a lifetime. When I used to drink a lot, when I would go out drinking with the same people a lot, there was a woman that I used to drink with, and I'm not trying to call her out or anything, but she would bring up one thing that somebody had said to her years ago and rant about it. 
she would bring up like something that somebody she knew had like said to her that she didn't like years earlier and when she would get drunk she would rant and rave about it and while we all do that to some degree like we all hold on to things I couldn't believe how much she was still bothered by some like offhand opinion some guy she dated years ago made once that wasn't even about her so that's what I mean about like it's not just that you'll react to these things like if you can't control your reaction to something in the moment like if you get hijacked by something somebody says in the moment there's a good chance you're gonna be hijacked by that forever you know so if you can still you you can still dislike that thing you can still you can still not like it but at the very least like not being hijacked doesn't just mean you're not hijacked in the moment but it's like that thing's not going to stay with you long term either which is you know a big part of it as well you know because that's that's like the risk you run when you let somebody's when you let like something somebody says completely hijack you is it's not just going to bother you temporarily it's going to bother you for a long time potentially you know hey batty stay here stay here and that's the risk you run when you don't control yourself you know that's the risk you run when you don't have control over you know over yourself i mean what else is there to say other than like when something hijacks you you don't have control over yourself and even if it bothers you for a minute, it could just as well bother you forever in some way because you don't have control. And when you get drunk, it might come out like it did with that woman I knew. It's crazy, but it's how things work if you, if you don't develop some kind of discipline around that. If you don't learn how to control your mind. I mean, this isn't me. This is, this is, here's, here's an idea that is not my own, and I don't even know who to attribute it to, but I know somebody else has said it, but everyone's so worried about mind control. They're like, oh, some, some nefarious force. New World Order is controlling our minds. Oh, they're going to give us a vaccine to control our minds. It's like, why are you so worried about other people controlling your mind when you can't even control your own mind? You know, that's the crazy thing about like this, all this like science fiction mind control stuff. It's like you're worried about other people controlling your mind when you don't even know how to control your own. And that's what I'm talking about. I'm talking right now about mind control and your ability to control your own mind you know, to the extent that you possibly can. It's not like anybody can con completely control every aspect of their own thoughts. But developing a discipline, whether it's spiritual, philosophical, psychological, whatever placeholder human term you want to use, discipline is the idea. And the reason you develop discipline is to control your own mind. And if you can control your own mind, you have a lot of control over your own life. You have a lot of control over everything that you interact with. Not in the sense that you control other people, but if you can simply not get hijacked by the things other people do and say, well, that's a form of controlling them. So having self-control in that way is having control of other things because you can control the way that they impact you. Mind control. The 
This land is mine. God gave this land to me. This brave, this golden land to me. And when the morning sun reveals her hills and plains, I see a land where children can run free. So take.